This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants stores. What's it like to do play-by-play for an NBA game? How do you come up with signature phrases? Who are the most influential sportscasters around? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I sincerely hope you're listening to this on our new mobile app, as it's the best way to do it. And today, I'm really happy to bring on Ryan Rucco, who is a play-by-play broadcaster for ESPN and the Yes Network. And um, Ryan, let's get into this. Let's break it down. I'm glad to have you on the show. Uh, I was listening to you doing the play-by-play for the Hawks-Celtics uh, Game 3 and it was kind of a funny little thing I thought we could talk about because um, I wasn't sure. I turned it on late. I wasn't sure who was doing the play-by-play. And on Twitter, I asked. Do you, I, I think and I think you kind of chimed in in the middle of the game. I did. I did. I uh, I, I I've followed you um, for a while on Twitter, courtesy of uh, my uh, cousin's husband, um, Adam Turner, who's the head coach of Bard uh, Basketball. He turned me on to following you a while ago, and. Uh, and so I happen to, you know, occasionally when I'm doing a game, I'll check um, anything uh, in my mentions. Uh, you know, some of it's just for the fun of it and seeing what the reaction is from people to the broadcast, which could be dangerous to go down that territory. <laughs> but the other part of it is occasionally, um, you know, you might get, uh, you know, just a little interesting nugget thrown your way that's worth following up on with your research department and clearing and whatnot. So I happen to see the tweet and I was like, Hey, cool, and and I appreciated the uh, the compliment, man. That that's the best way to uh, to to get love when you're doing a broadcast is from someone who doesn't already have some kind of like predisposed reason to to enjoy your work. And so it was a really organic way, and I appreciated it. Hey, that's cool. So I guess the idea being that like you have commercial breaks, and you're just probably what you're just kind of sitting there not doing too much. Is that how that works? And you can check your phone. Well, so I mean, typically. In a commercial break, you or your producer will be uh, guiding you through in your ear some sort of traffic, we call it, whatever you're going to be doing coming out of break in that, you know, 20 second gap leading up until the action being back, sometimes a little shorter, sometimes a little longer than that. So you want to make sure you're captive uh, as far as being able to absorb whatever the producer is going to say in that sense. Um, and then we'll get stat sheets and I'm looking over that, too. But in a, you know two-minute commercial break that also leaves, whatever, 30 seconds to uh, check your phone. And I try not to do it too much um, during action within the quarters. Like, I usually try and save it for end of quarter or halftime. But occasionally, you know, you you check, and and I happen to uh, – I happened to be looking uh, at that time. So it was fate, my man. I think it was, absolutely. And so, 
you know, a, a fade aside, you know, we're talking about styles of play by play because a lot of times, it, you know, it's not easy to get into your own voice because it's, it's a kind of a straightforward way that I guess to do play by play. But I wanted to say the funny thing was, is when people were responding to me besides you about when I asked who it was, I got a couple different responses that were not you. And they were like certain. They thought it was Mike Tirico. Uh, they thought it was Mike Green. And I thought that was really interesting to think that, like, you know, it, it was uh, – I think it's a testament to some degree of of your voice and what you're able to do because those are the top of the top guys, right? right? I mean, I would revere those guys to no yeah. end. And I thought that was interesting. Did you Do you feel like you have any connection to those guys and, and, and their style? You know what? Uh, first of all, that is a huge compliment. Anytime somebody wants to get me confused with either of those guys, I will gladly take it. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, so Mike Breen and I are both Fordham guys. Um, we both uh, uh, learned at WFUV in different ways because, um, you know, I, I was there when, um, as it's currently structured, with Bob Barron's our executive uh, producer of WFUV Sports, who now is a 79-year-old man who's doing, done a little bit of everything in this business and uh, learned under Marty Glickman. And he really taught the Marty Glickman way of play-by-play and so that was uh you know some of what i learned but marty also mentored and tutored people before bob was there plus um fordham's broadcast lineage has made sure to pass on from one broadcaster to the next from generation to generation and i think there's a certain common mentality and disposition with all of us so i do think there are threads through whether it's Mike Breen or Michael Kay or Bob Papa or Chris Carino or me or Spiro Didis, if you listen to any of us, I think you'll hear certain things that are similar with either, you know, our kind of the way we couple phrases or our cadence um, or, you know, certain aspects of our style. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, Breen and Tariko um, go, I think that, you know, all of us try and make sure we use great energy, but not like, over the top, this doesn't make sense energy, not it's a layup in a 4 nothing game and I'm going nuts, but hey, I'm really happy to be here and I'm engaged and, you know, I want my voice to resemble the rhythm of the game at that moment and the excitement of the crowd at that moment. And, you know, I know that we all prepare like maniacs um, as well and I think that's a huge part of it. And I think we all try and have a somewhat similar disposition of, uh, you know, optimism and professionalism and not going too far one way or another with being too opinionated, but also being willing to show that we uh, know the game. You know, some play-by-play guys are afraid to kind of jump into that territory. And, you know, Mike Breen is not because he really knows the game. Mm-hmm. Mike Tirico is not because he really knows the game. And I try and make sure to go into that area, too, because I believe I know the game as well. So maybe those are some of the ways where we could be somewhat similar, although I still have a, a long ways to go to reach those guys' heights for sure. Well, you know, it's funny because I go through footage all day, every day, and I'm sitting there going, you know, this studying film. And so as a result, I don't yeah. normally even hear the announcers. And even during the games, like when I'm doing my vines, you know, once I do a vine, I'm now 10 seconds behind. So as soon as I can, I got to jump ahead. So, I like, you know, it's a very disjointed thing. So, like, if I if somebody catches my ear, like, that's usually pretty – like, that that was what – when I, I was impressed, I was like, wait, because normally I wouldn't even hear what the announcers are saying. 
And so I started to look back. I was trying to remember, like, okay, what was it that caught my eye when I did that um, that tweet? And then that led us to this point. Um, and so I started writing. I, I kind of went through the game as much as I could to find some stuff, and it was not that hard. Um, so not that catchphrases are the kind of thing you want to do. I feel like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, yeah. the, the, you had uh, Saturday Night Live sketches where they're trying to always do, you know, uh, isn't that special yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but I caught, I caught a few. So I'm going to throw some out here. Okay. I'm kind of curious the origin or how you got those. Like you had one where it was an alley-oop and you had, you flipped it when you were like, he oops the alley. Uh, that seems pretty creative. I don't yes. think I've heard that. Where does that come from? So... Honest, that one, I, I am so like not a catchphrase guy because <laughs> that's part of like the way I was taught play by play is like you don't try and do shtick, you try and call the game, right? Mm -hmm. But what you also learn is stands to like certain things to attach to, right? Like, like Mike Breen is in no way a shtick play by play guy, like not even the slice. However, his saying bang is something I anticipate and look forward to and get excited by, right? right? So there's certain value in having that. So when they develop organically, you're cool with them. That's just sort of an overarching you know, uh, theme. As far as how it's uh, specific to Oops the Alley, what I noticed uh, when I was calling action, um, I don't know, I've been calling the NBA in some capacity now for seven years uh, because of my Brooklyn Nets work and before that New Jersey Nets work. And, uh, and now with ESPN for the last three seasons. Um, but like what I noticed is when I was calling a game and I'm calling an alley-oop, it, it's difficult to have it be rhythmic and you identify it as an alley-oop because the first thing you're doing is identifying the person who puts the ball in the hoop mm -hmm. as, it, as it's happening, right? Like you're, you're, you're not, you might say like Westbrook lob to the rim, Robertson, you know, throws it down, but in no way am I acknowledging alley-oop then, right? Because the alley is not the finishing part. The right. alley is <laughs> the first part. So I was, so you could always just say, like, Robertson throws it down, nifty alley-oop from Westbrook to Robertson or something, right? Mm -hmm. But then you're sort of delaying the time of acknowledgement about the alley-oop, and it's not in the call, so to speak. It's sort of in, like, the round out of the call. So that was literally just my like scientific way to uh, acknowledge the fact that it was an alley-oop in real time rather than sort of what we would be calling it a backdooring. Like you can always tell if somebody – we all at times uh, don't realize who's taking a shot um, because we might get like screened out or – uh, we being play-by-play -play guys, or maybe somebody just doesn't didn't do their homework, doesn't know all the players, or maybe a 12th man came in the game who was signed yesterday, and you really don't you, you don't have as good an identification, so you're like, shot is good, the three <laughs> by, and then you say the name right okay. afterwards. That's called that's called backdooring. It's just not as natural a rhythm with the call. So in order for the alley oop to not be backdoored, where you're sort of like rounding out the call with it, I just started saying, well, like. The oop is what you're seeing live. But I want to acknowledge alley-oop. So I, I, it happens like once or twice sort of naturally just within the call of the game. In my, uh, I guess, subconscious quest to be able to acknowledge the alley-oop as it's happening. And and then I was like, oh, that's kind of – I kind of like that. Like I, I'm not a huge catchphrase guy, but this one I kind of like. And, uh, and then I had people on Twitter say to me like, you know, hey, man, I like oops the alley, whatever. And so I was like, you know, obviously small sample size and – and whatever but i was like okay maybe it's not terrible and then it just became uh 
a thing that I decided to to stick with. Absolutely. You know, you've inspired me now. I feel like we need to do a, a book about the history of phrases like that because alley-oop, I don't understand. I mean, I, I kind of get it. It must have been some sort of a, oh, it's a fancy thing you do on the on the, on the the playground or something. And so alley must, you know, And but I would love to find out the origin. You know, where it actually came from. Me too, I, I, honestly, I because I wish I knew. I really don't know. In fact, when we're done with this, I may be Googling that to try and find out. <laughs> All right. Well, don't don't steal the book rights yet because I want to do it too. Okay. Uh, you know, but even like the, the origin of the high five, you know, that would be, I think I read something about it once where somebody attributed it to like Dusty Baker or something like that. But it seems like it, the high five was around even before that. But I don't know. Um, that would be a cool concept for a book, actually, to just uh, have like all these societal norms, uh, whether they're phrases or actions and what the origins of them are. Yeah, and you know what? I, we just gave someone a really great idea, I'm sure, and now we've blown it. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> well yeah, we could always edit that out. Uh, so, um, you know, let me ask you this, because I, I feel like, you know, through my trials and travails of building up B-Ball Breakdown and doing all of the on-camera stuff, there was a lot of voice stuff that I really worked on and trained to try and, and get. Um, I, I know Fordham, it sounds like they have a very uh, a terrific training ground for you. Uh, I'm kind of curious, was there, and it's sort of an acting component in a way, where you need to train the voice. Did you just sort of have it even earlier on, or was that something you needed to build toward and work on and, 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 and attain? Well, I mean, I think that um, there, there's definitely a component that's um, just inherent, and then there's a component that's, uh, you know, cultivated and, and tweaked and, and learned, right? Um, the, the part that's inherent is when you are an athlete, or, you know, you've been around sports your entire life, there's a certain association with the rhythm of the game. And basketball, I believe more than any other sport, has a very defined rhythm. So when I am calling a basketball game, it's just going to nap my cadence because I sort of just understand what's happening should naturally flow with the game and create sort of like if you were looking at um, – two audio channels and one of them was you know an audio version of the action and the other one was your actual voice they should be synced right and if you understand the game and the rhythm of it then you understand and you will naturally just kind of talk in a way that's uh, symbiotic with the with the action if you don't understand it then you may struggle with that a little bit and the first person who made me realize that that I was lucky enough to just kind of have was actually Gary Cohen, who's the Mets play-by-play uh, -play guy. I was a sophomore at Fordham, uh, working for WFTV, doing broadcast demos, which are you know mock broadcasts where we sit there with a tape recorder and we have to do them until we're good enough to be on air, as deemed by uh, our boss. And um, he was like, he was listening to it, and I'm anxious for feedback and whatnot. And he was like, "Did you play?" And I was like, "Yeah, I played." And you know, I mean. Obviously, no great shakes, so five ten point guard. But like, uh, I was like, I played like, and and he's like, you can do this, man. I I can hear like the rhythm of the game is you have it, and you know that was uh, useful for for two reasons, right? One, when you have somebody who's established who tells you as you're trying to figure out if you can do this that you can, just gives you a foundation of confidence to perform, which is essential. Two, it also sort of opened up this window. I was much more of a, I played baseball, basketball, soccer growing up, but baseball was always my number one sport. And it was sort of encouraging to me that my number two sport, I had this 
like connection with that Gary was able to acknowledge at least. So in that sense, that's sort of the inherent part. The part that's not is understanding and learning, you know, sort of the, the different ranges of your voice, right? And there are different people who help you with that along the way. Also, one of the key things we learn is always have a place to go, right? If I'm going nuts and just absolutely, you know, excited beyond belief, tearing my clothes off when it's a, you know, a, a three to tie the game with seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, that should be exciting. But that shouldn't be as exciting as the buzzer beater that wins game seven of the NBA Finals. And if I don't have a place that I've never hit until I get that moment, then I haven't left myself someplace to go. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the key uh, elements of our learning at WFUB. And I think it's just a common thing for a lot of uh, play-by-play guys to learn. So you learn within that range of like, you know, I'm, I'm energetic and interested, but what's happening isn't crucial. Mm-hmm. Is just your sort of bottom. Because you never want to sound just like, totally bored or uninterested because that's not going to make the viewer or listener interested. That's, that's an, no matter what's going on in the game, you know, and, and by the way, I, you know, if you, if you call games for a, a, a bad team, any years you learn, you get a lot of practice in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we, got, we got a lot of practice this year with the Brooklyn Nets of how you handle, you know, when your teams, you know, your team, the team that you are the home broadcaster for, is down 30 and your audience no doubt is like oh this game i can't take it but how do you how do you stay engaged right that should be your your baseline of energy and engagement and then your your or your, your bottom line and then your top is game seven nba finals buzzer beater that's the other place and then it's where do i go within that and how do i get creative within that um and you you learn different ways and you learn different ways to use your voice you know you learn like What's the best rhythm of your excitement? What's the, like, do you want to get more like, uh, you know, like kind of the growl of your voice or is it, or is it just more of a sing song? And, and I, I think reps does that, man. I think the more reps you have, the more you can kind of play around with it because the game slows down. All the other things you might be thinking about become second nature. And then you're actually able to just think about the tool and how you want to tweak it as you're doing a game. Yeah, you know, I funny. I think the the perils when you're working on it and learning how to do that is you get into that radio voice where, and a lot of guys do it. They do it well. Where like, and, and I'm guilty because I'll do it too. Where I'll, you know, you get that. Hey, coach. Hey, sports fans. It's Coach Nick, and I'm here to tell you. And you have to be careful about that. I think that there was a probably a period where that was the style. Even though yeah. when you go back and you look at like the best guys who did either color commentary or play-by-play, they always maintain more of a realistic sound. And, I, I mean, that actually brings me back to someone like Marty Glickman, who I feel like yeah. probably was maybe the originator of that. Um, and, and he uh, he had that. And, like, I had, I, I'm assuming that you must have seen the documentary Glickman, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. I've read his book, too. I Yeah, and he definitely – you're so on the money. He definitely – is that kind of guy. He, he doesn't want you to be Mr. Joe announcer. That's what we call him, you know? Uh, like, hey, everybody, welcome to Yankee Stadium. And <laughs> you listen around the country. There are still plenty of broadcasters who do that. I can't take it. You know, I cannot take it. Now, the way you talk on air is always an accent of your normal tone because you just are – if you talked in the energy that you need – to be interesting on air when you were just in one-on-one conversations constantly, people would be like, dude, can you please stop? Like, you know what I mean? Like it, right. it, 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 it's not, it's not appropriate, but 
really all it is is an increase in energy, not a difference in the legitimacy of your tone, right? Right. Like even right now, you know, the way you and I are talking on this, like this isn't how I talk in every <laughs> right. But it's not me doing Mr. Joe announcer voice. This is just me when I'm more engaged or interested or excited, right? So that's what it is. My my, uh, my mentor, Bob Ahrens, who's, who really taught me the foundations of play-by-play and as I mentioned before, is you know a, a Marty Glickman disciple himself. Um, he always would say, "Talk to me, not at me," and uh, that's sort of what you want to do. You know, you're talking to the audience, not at the audience. The Mr. Joe announcer guy is kind of like this non-relatable, you know, voice in the sky who is letting you know what's going on but who there's for me as a listener and viewer, and some people could feel differently, but I think most would fall in this category. There's just a lack of connection to, yeah. because, and I think that that's the difference is you, if you're using your normal voice, first of all, it gives you a wider range because it's, you're not like trying to stay in this area. That's not, not your routine or your, your, your normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just also makes it more, it makes it more relatable for, for the audience as well. Like if you, if you listen to, Mike Tirico or Mike Breen or Dan Shulman, you know, or Ian Eagle. Like these are who these are all broadcasters who I really admire. Michael Kay, like all these guys, Joe Buck as well. Like there and Joe just has like these unbelievable natural pipes. But like all of these guys, if you talk to them just off air, their voices sound the same as when you talk to them. On it. The only difference being there's a little more passion, a little more energy. Right. Well, let's throw Mark Jones in there. Give him some love, too. A guy who's already been on the show, in case he's listening. Mark, we love you. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's also there. Oh. I, you know, and by the he's way, the, yeah, the, the Joe Radio uh, thing also, I mean, he's got really white teeth. And he's got a poofed up hair. And he's probably got some sort of cheesy collar, you know, wearing. Like, that's what, you know, that's the image you get, I think, when when you hear that. And, uh, you know, the guys, like, when I was growing up, I'm a little bit older than you, but, you know, um, like like Al McGuire, he was the guy that we revered in the Midwest for his analysis. And it was, you know, there was a voice that was not necessarily made for radio even. It was, you know, he had the accent of from Brooklyn. And yeah. um, but he, but he really was able. You just you respond to that, I think, a lot more than when it's not. Uh, you don't feel like you're talking to a real person. Yes, that that's it, man. Like you 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 want the person on the other side to feel like you know they are a real person, just giving you the game, not somebody who is you know here to put on a show. Like the show is the game, not right. them. You yeah. know, and like the way I look at play by play right in radio you know you're you're the eyes for the audience right you want the audience whoever's listening listener marty glickman has this phrase consider the listener you want the listener to be able to have the same exact conversation with the person who watched the game that's what you want and so it's your job your job to describe everything in that fashion you are the what you know it's um you know Thomas, left of the lane, fade away from 17 feet, is good, you know, whereas on TV, it could just be Thomas, again, he's hit six of his last seven, you know, something like that, and where TV is different, I always look at TV play-by-play as Marty Glickman has his thing where he says, you're the scorecard, which I think is so true, you know, you're the scorecard, you're telling me this guy has how many points, whatever, Um, and which I think sometimes we don't do enough 
in uh in the in the NBA basketball, like just reminding people point totals. But it's like something that you know I know all of us who like learn the Marty Glickman style really try and stay on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my thing is it's like being the score to a movie when you're doing TV play by play. Like you see what's going on, right? Like it. it if you're watching a movie, you see the killer walk into the room. And if you hear flowery music, you're going to be like, hold on a second. And it's going to confuse you. And you're going to be like, this doesn't make sense to me. But if you hear dun, 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 it helps that moment come to life, right? Right. If someone hits a 30-footer to tie the game at the buzzer, you saw it. You know what happens. But if you hear Johnson from 30 feet, that's good. On a buzzer beater, you're going to be like, well, oh, did it not count or something? Like, I'm confused. Like, right. I thought that was a big moment. Whereas if you hear Johnson, oh, what a shot. We're going over time. Whatever. Yeah. Like, you, you know, the moment makes sense to you. And so that's kind of like where TV is really fun because you are acting as the score to the movie that the audience is watching and help those moments come to life. Absolutely. Well, you know what? We're getting wonky here, and I know that a lot of people who want to get into this business are going to cherish all these great nuggets. But let's yeah, sure. let's throw out some vitamins here. Let's let's talk a little bit about the yeah. NBA and what's happening in the playoffs. And uh, I was just telling you earlier, I, I've um, I've been a little bit busy the last two weeks, which is kind of uh, uh, crazy for me because I normally would be glued to uh, to the TV. So, but I thought we could kind of you know let's talk a little bit about what yeah. you're seeing in the playoffs. Uh, you know, we'll yeah. definitely we'll get back to some more stuff, but. Uh, about you and, and your and announcing, but um, I'm just kind of curious. Did you happen to check out the game last night between um, the uh, Pacers and the Raptors? Did you see that? I did. I did. And so, what are, what are your thoughts on that and how that ended up playing out? So, uh, Toronto, to me, when they have their, I, I've thought all along. You know, one of the things I was curious about looking at the Eastern Conference playoffs, because we all look at the Eastern Conference playoffs through the prism of can anyone beat Cleveland, right? Can anyone challenge Cleveland? And one of the things I was curious about is, well, what about when you have Joseph DeRozan Lowry on the floor together? Like, could that give Cleveland some trouble because it forces Kyrie to guard? Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, what we saw in this series – you know, we saw that those three definitely had spurts of success that makes me intrigued by watching them together even more moving forward, right? As far as last night's game goes, you know, the biggest takeaway for me was you know, at the end of that game, again, we saw Toronto kind of tight at the end. And we saw what we saw at times when Charlotte had leads late against Miami and what we see a lot of times in the playoffs for teams that don't have guys who've won in the postseason before or sometimes don't have enough diversification in their offense mm-hmm. where you get these you-go-I-go possessions late in games and you end up with horrid shots and you give the other team a chance to come back and win or you don't give yourself a chance to come back and win. I mean, it's, it's sort of one of the things we lament with Westbrook and Durant so often when we watch Oklahoma City's late-game offense, right, where it's like, uh, maybe they run a high pick and roll for each other, or maybe they just give the ball to you know one, one gives it to the other, and then you have to watch them isolate and try and score, which they're both excellent at doing. But there's really no imagination, and uh, and it becomes predictable and easy to defend. And I thought what we saw in the fourth quarter last night with Toronto was a whole lot of that, like and I think an element of being a little flustered, and it made me think. And I don't always buy into this stuff, 
but it made me think, you know what, maybe the whole winning a playoff series thing actually was this monkey on their back because they looked like a team that was tight and stopped playing their normal brand of basketball at the end of that game. So now that they won that series, it makes me also think, okay, maybe since that did seem to be a credible, legitimate thing that they were dealing with, maybe that helps them kind of loosen up and just play their style. The other thing that stood out to me was, you know, I mean, late in the game, there was definitely a couple questionable calls. Clearly, uh, um, Mahimi got shoved in the back by DeRozan when Indiana was down three. There's no doubt about that. I think DeRozan also traveled on the way up the floor after getting away with that. Um, but but my, my biggest, the thing that stuck in my craw, and this is very specific, but the thing that stuck in my craw more than anything was, and He's one of my absolute favorite coaches, and I love him. But I never thought Frank Vogel should have taken that timeout when they were down three and they were about to run. Toronto had – it was 28 seconds left or whatever it was when he took that timeout after they stopped the Raptors again on one of those stagnant possessions. Mm-hmm. And they had – I think they maybe had George just, like, flanking out down the center of the court. And uh, whoever had the ball uh, in his hands was already off and running. And you had three Toronto – Raptors, who had kind of gone for the offensive rebound, who were down, crouched in a compromised position around the right block. And I thought it was one of those situations where maybe he kind of predetermined. Right. I'm taking the timeout no matter what and didn't adjust on the fly. I mean, Indiana is one of those teams, man, I just have so much respect for because they defend so well that they're going to be in anything. Like, I knew they'd be in this series because – they defend, man. They they just do under Vogel. As much as we thought this year was going to be more of an offensive Indiana team and, you know, their defensive you know, schemes and principles are going to change, they still were a great defensive team and an okay at best offensive team. Yeah. And that's kind of what you get. Um, you know, I, Frank- I will say really quickly, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I was watching on my phone as our my plane was on the plane waiting to start taxiing and, like, you know, probably should have had it off in airplane mode, but whatever. It was important. Yeah. Uh, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So I believe that that the 28 second thing was it was a couple different problems. A they did, they had had two turnovers that were egregiously bad. Like as they were trying to push it, and so I could see why Vogel would be like you know crapping in his pants. You know what? We got to control this. But if I'm not right. mistaken, the mistake was when he called it, they'd already half advanced the ball like with a pass. And they couldn't inbound at the half court. I believe it because they they inbounded it at full court or like in a weird spot. Yeah, right. They already they did. They they didn't call it right on the rebound. And it was kind of weird anyway because he was like scraping up the rebound too. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and, right. right. And so that, that was that's a that was a red flag as a coach where you're like, yeah, you know, if you if you're not going to be able to advance it, then yeah, just kind of let him go. But then again, they had turned. I mean, so you could argue they didn't deserve to win the game with those two turnovers that were just you know. However. Awful. You know, it was funny yeah. in the game five breakdown I did. We went through, you know, and it was funny because the Raptor fans were really mad at me because I focused on the end of the game, not a lot of the beginning, where I'm sure there were some calls against the Raptors, but there were some terrible calls that went in favor of the Raptors. Um, and when I predicted in game five, I'm like, this this is the, pretty much the only reason why the Pacers lost that game was because of these calls. I have no doubt they're going to go back to Indiana and just win, and we'll be back for Game 7. And then we saw that, and it really kind of sucks that it comes down to the refs again, in a way. Um, and it sounds like a lot of fans across the board here are not really happy with the, with the calls in the playoffs the, this year. You know, I think that 
I, I don't believe anything ever comes down to the officials other than it's the, you know, it, it's the, the absolute final play of a game. And there's like just an egregious, egregious call. This isn't a referee decision. But for example, if we look at the Super Bowl two years ago and the play call not giving the ball to Marshawn Lynch and throwing there. It's like, yeah. yeah, there are a million factors for why you win or lose that game. But the reality is, like, that one decision, like, that lost the game for you. That won it for New England, right? Like, uh, Jeff Van Gundy always talks about this. Like, there are some plays that win or lose you the game. So, like, in those situations, it's okay to, to say, like, yeah, like, this won or lost me the game. However, when there's opportunities to make up for it, like, so a call with however many seconds left, you know, 30 seconds left and I still have a chance to do something about it. I, I, I never will blame a win or a loss on the officials. I just don't do it. I think that the reason we found, but, but, but having said that there were some terrible missed calls at the end of game seven, no doubt. Indiana was still down by three. Who knows if they don't, if they do call DeRozan for the push and Mahimi goes to the line, I don't know. Does Mahimi make both free throws? Maybe he goes one for two. Then they foul Toronto. Toronto hits two. They go up four. So it's it's not one of those like, hey, that definitely cost us the game, right? It's just unfortunate that it happened in that spot. Mm-hmm. But I think that the reason that people focus on, you know, the refs more this time of year is just because they're, every possession is emphasized, you know? I mean, it's I feel that when I call these games, too. Like, during an NBA season, like, you watch a game, and how many possessions are you really locked in on, right, as right. a fan? Right now, every single – like, you're up eight in the second quarter and there's a, you know, a block charge call that should have gone your way. And you're still thinking about it three minutes later when it's a four point game now, instead of being 10. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's part of the, the, uh, you know, interest and excitement of the postseason. So I really think it's just more of a matter of that because it, it's such a hard sport to officiate. I, I'm not just doing the typical play by play guy thing. I really do believe these officials do a really good job, especially when you look to some of the other professional sports and, yeah. and the kind of things you get. Um, so I feel like it it's more of a function of focus and examination than actual ability of the officials. Sure, sure. Well, um, yeah, now here's an interesting idea because in theory, if you looked at the way this played out, because normally those game sevens at home – uh, they get a 10-12 point lead in the third quarter. The other team gets desperate and they win going away, which is exactly what happened in Miami, right? That's, that's, that's the typical. We've seen that for years and years. So, in theory, had this game, had the, the Raptors game gone on about 90 more seconds, it probably felt like the Pacers were going to win this. They had the complete momentum. They were The yeah. other team was – so, here's the interesting question. Casey probably doesn't keep his job if they lost that game that way, right? Right. I mean, that's what I'm you know what I was thinking that last night, because he's I believe he's a very good coach. I thought he was uh, essential to what Dallas did when they beat Miami in the finals um, as a as a member and a huge part of the defensive scheme uh, of Rick Carlisle's staff uh, that year. I, and I think that, you know, he's done a great job in, you know, flipping the culture and also having these guys come back in regular seasons and be better year after year after having disappointing playoff losses and not necessarily making, you know, dramatic personnel changes that would make you think, okay, now we got that piece. I know Damari Carroll's one thing and Corey Joseph is one thing, but it's not like they had this core 
and then they were like, oh, yeah, we added a superstar that's going to take us to the next level, right? Mm -hmm. So right. for him to be able to convince this group that we can still keep growing, even though we're only adding in sort of, you know, supplementary parts and not key, key uh, you know, huge acquisitions, I think is significant and a big testament to his ability to keep his group focused, too. And, you know, when you come from, I'm trying to think of who the coach I was thinking about. I've used this. This example in, I believe it was uh, in the NFL. Mm. I'm trying to think of what what coach I was thinking of where um, they were, you know, they couldn't get past. Oh no, I know what Marvin Lewis. I use this example with Marvin Lewis and the Bengals all the time. And you know, the Bengals have lost whatever it is now seven, you know, seven straight playoff games under him, where they just haven't been able to win the, win a playoff game. However, they're in the playoffs every year. And the Bengals were the laughing stock of the NFL prior to him arriving. Mm -hmm. So would you rather have the guy who consistently has shown you you can be in the dance, even if he hasn't been able to get you over the top? Or, and it's very logical, do you say, this is where he takes us. Now we need the guy to get us over the top. And that would have been a difficult decision for the Raptors with Dwayne Casey is, has he shown us he can only get to this point and we need someone else to take this talent and take them over the top? Or... Are we lucky to have a guy who's gotten us to this point, which we hadn't seen in years, and he's kind of taken us to a consistent place? But that's a really rabid fan base, too, that's thirsty for success. I think it would have been hard for him to survive it uh, had they blown that series, especially at home and, and with the history mounting yeah. with a similar scenario three years in a row. And the, and the way they would have lost that, which would have been what I, we, we, yeah. what I call yeah. sphincteritis, uh, they, yeah, yeah. they they really right. they, you know it, it's that and, and it's common you know you play not to lose but um, I mean I think the issue I've had with with the Raptors for a long time is that there seems to be a, a definite ceiling to this group uh, and so part of yeah. it might be Casey and part of it might just be the players uh, but they're kind of like the OKC of the East to me like you mentioned before their offense is, is unimaginative doesn't really create great shots and when I watch DeRozan and Lowry score. Uh, I mean, man, those are tough shots for the most part. And I don't right. know if, if DeRozan is that guy. I really, you know, he's, he, he, he looks the part. He can do some of those moves. And I did a breakdown earlier this year where I showed it's like, but he's got like these go-to moves that, he's, that are not like the most successful, uh, you know, like comparatively to, uh, you know, I know Clay Thompson is not a great, a great example. I mean, he, DeMar DeRozan's a refreshingly old school, you know, in the Dwayne Wade mode, right? But Dwayne Wade is so well, much like a better. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when right. you watch, like, Wade is so much better at those moves. He's learned yeah. the moves. He kind of knows how to do them, but he just doesn't really finish. So so my take on it is, it's like, I think it's a bit of a flawed roster anyway. So I think that Dwayne Casey's probably just, you know, he's doing the best he can with what he has. Um, however, you could argue that, yeah, maybe there is a different way that they could do it. I mean, I've, I've criticized him for lineups a lot. Um, and I wonder if a lot of NBA coaches really study five-man lineups because, you know, the, the, the analytics guys will come out of the woodwork and they, there's all these different coaches that they'll hammer every year because they're not playing the right lineups. Dwight Powell was a great example of a guy, and I did one of the breakdowns of the games earlier where it was like his impact on the game is not even tangible in numbers, really. But when he's out there, you can't question the fact that there's just so much better. And, uh, yeah. and yet he wasn't playing. It was really erratic. And so finally, I got to check the score. Do you know how many minutes he played last night? How, how encyclopedic are you? <laughs> you know what? I don't know how many minutes he played last night. Good question. We should check. But, well, if only we had a, a way of checking on these things uh, with uh, some sort of machine. 
I talked with um, earlier this year. I was doing a Nets uh, Pacers game, mm-hmm. and I noticed you know Lavoy Allen was a plus minus star this year, and I'm like his his numbers you know their their offensive rate their defensive rating his net rating is it's fantastic for a guy whose conventional averages seem meager you know mm-hmm. and so i i asked frank vogel about it and um he, he he knew he was on top of it you know and he said i'll tell you why and he went through all the things that he does that don't show up in the box score and it's, it was you know, he's absolutely our best screen setter. Yeah. You know, that was the number one thing he mentioned. And he went through a, a, a bunch of different things like that. And so I think it takes a, you know, it takes a confident coach. It takes someone who's not uh, resistant to new school to look at that stuff. And, and I think it's a combination of things. You know, sometimes if a guy happens to be on the floor for a couple of huge runs, uh, against opponents that are dealing with one thing or another that can skew the numbers and you really have to take that into account. But over the life of the season, obviously a pretty accurate story can be told, at least one that should be used as supplementary evidence. And a guy like Steve Kerr, to me, has the perfect disposition for this stuff. And it's like, yeah, like I want to see, you know, I've got, I want to see everything. Like, you know, I'm, I have my opinions, but like why would I be resistant to information? You know, like what, what, would, what would make me not want information and, and I, I see that all the time in in baseball as well I mean the Yankees club has a lot I've had long talks with Rob Thompson their bench coach about this as well as Joe Girardi their manager and it's like yeah you know there are certain things I've talked with A-Rod about it a lot too you know there are certain things where it's like okay if you know this guy is you know this guy gets nervous or scared in these moments maybe yeah. it doesn't show up but trust me I look in the huddle and I know right right or or just always goes out on these nights or whatever. Those are the kind of things that analytics just can't account for. You have to use. But if we have numbers that can take away the luck factor or give us a more defined idea of, you know, what groups work well together, why wouldn't you want to use that information? Oh, I know. I mean, I I wish I I was years like when, when I was coaching at our high school, I was an assistant in the late 90s. My, my mentor and I at the high school level, we were coming up with a lot of this stuff. And we had no way of doing possession-based analysis, but we wished we had it. And here yeah. it is. And it's, you know, but again, there's no, there's no book. Like, it's not easy to, from a coaching standpoint to know exactly what you're supposed to do with it and how you want. And there's like, there's 100,000 different ways that you can make it work for you. And no one wants to tell you because it's like they don't want to give you an advantage. Um, but... Yeah. You know, so so I, and my, the other problem I'm having recently now is because I'm eyeball, I'm the eyeball guy. Um, you know, I'm seeing some of these stats from you know ESPN uh, that are wrong, that are based on sport view data, and they're of course they're like it can't be wrong. It's the cameras are watching, and I'm like, well, you have. Uh, I mean, uh, it just happened recently, and I went through it, and I'm forgetting. But like the the other example I had was last year in the finals, they had LeBron James as four for four against Harrison Barnes. And I knew right away that that was wrong because I remembered specifically one possession where Harrison Barnes contested a shot and he missed. And it turned out there was another one that they missed. So if it's a little bit inaccurate over one game, okay. But if it's a little bit inaccurate over the course of the season, that's a lot inaccurate. And you yeah. have guys who are going to stand by this stuff as analytics people who are like immutable. It's completely binary to them. And now right. we have a problem. It's weird. Yeah. You need, it's got to be a synthesis of both. And I, I hate, 
and this is obviously just a philosophical uh, uh, thing that's become a prevalent discussion in sports today, but I hate how people act like there's two camps. You're either a numbers guy yeah. or you're, uh, you know, an eyes, trust your eyes and gut guy. I'm like, no, I'm both. You know, like I, there are numbers where I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I need to look at this more carefully or whatever. And then there's, there's things that I see and I'm like, I see this. Let me see what the numbers say about it. You know, when you kind of use them both to funnel each other and give you a fuller picture, but it drives me nuts how people act like there has to be two defined schools, one <laughs> right. or the other. You hit on a really important thing. You know, it's no different than like the textbooks, right? You know, people trust in general, right? You grow up in, in most educational systems, you trust your textbook, right? Okay, who, who wrote the textbook? You know, I mean, that's like, that's a huge part of actually learning how to learn is learning your sources. For some reason with analytics, we don't think there is any sort of room for error because it's numbers, but you've just given a very defined example of how there is room for error. And so you have to remember, okay, this is what the numbers are saying, but like when we're going to this next level stuff, how perfected is the way to get those numbers. And yeah. that's all still a work in progress. We're, yeah, we're definitely not there. I mean, and then the, then the math guys got on me at, the other night because I, I use a phrase that I suppose in the typical math for it sense isn't accurate where I said, you know, DeAndre Jordan was six for nine and the Blazers appeared to not want to hack a DeAndre anymore because of that. And I tweeted out, no, no, no. no. All the more reason to do it because he will, like, regression to the mean is what I used. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and they're like that they're, they're in a very mean spirited way or felt that way on Twitter. That's not how it works. You know, that's not how regression to the mean works. And so they treat every individual instance as a separate entity that has no influence by anything else. I said, OK, fine. But that's how free throws work, <laughs> you know, yeah, especially with DeAndre right. Jordan and a guy with, with mechanics like that. And so um, that's the problem. Also, when we're talking about shooting, and then that got into a whole ridiculous Twitter argument about the hot hand. And it's like, okay, you want to tell me there's no hot hand? Oh, we've proven there's no hot hand. I present to you Clay Thompson's 37-point third quarter from whatever that was last year. You know, I present to you, you know, and it's like there's just simply – there's no way to measure. I think that's what we're saying. We're in the infancy of all these things. We just haven't been able to really figure out how to do a lot of these things. Uh, And then, you know, my big pet peeve right now is the, the, the defensive stats are really problematic to me. And I keep seeing these weird things that yeah. don't match the eye test. And I don't think we've come up with a great way yet to use the advanced analytics for defense. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. In fact, because of that, and I'm, I'm one of the play-by-play guys who, who will incorporate analytics probably more than others. And some of that has to do with, you know, my age. I'm 29 years old, so I've kind of, like, grown up in this generation, right? But um, I, I, I will – I'm totally – like, I embrace them. Like, I love – like the, you know, per possession numbers. And I feel like they, you know, accounting for pace is crucial. You know, I mean, you know, better than anyone, it's crucial for uh, actually examining the effectiveness of an offense or a defense, right? right. But when it right. comes to like the individual metric to, you know, like uh, to define someone's defensive value, I have a hard time. First of all, it's not digestible for the viewer yet, whereas – you know, pace and per possession numbers now have become that way. But you can teach them. You only want to teach them if there is actual, you know, if you feel like there's a legitimate uh, value behind it and and it's been sort of worked out. And I just don't think we're, 
we're quite there yet with the, with the defensive metrics. Well, let me ask you this. How much time do you get to spend? This is a two-parter because I'm kind of curious how much time you get to spend with coaches as part of your job. And then where did you – how were you able to amass your, your basketball knowledge? I'm assuming those are hand-in-hand. Hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, I spend a ton of time with coaches. And so much of what I learn is from them and what I've learned is from them. Um, I – you know, the different – part of learning the game – is having played it growing up. And I was always the kind of player who uh, like had a coach's mind, you know, um, and like, for example, different sport, but you know, when I was 13 years old and my coaches, we had a, we had a rain out. My coaches like weren't able to make it to my game until like the fifth inning. Like I coached my team, you know, like that. So I was always kind of that guy, you know, on my team, sort of like the heady player. Like I had a little ability now, but like I, (laughs) And I always was a heady player. So I was kind of, you know, you know, you play the game growing up and you sort of have that, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, natural digestion for the chess aspect of the game. And you learn it some that way. But but, you know, the NBA is a different animal. Um, And uh, and and what you realize is you can never stop learning, obviously. And I've learned so much from being around Hubie Brown, who I consider to be a great friend and, you know, a don of basketball and who I just love soaking up uh, time with um, and, and, you know, hearing his stories, hearing his strategy, hearing which coaches he likes, hearing what he thinks works. You know, I mean, one of the things he always talked about um, is, you know, as a coach, he his critical thing was like final six minutes of a game. I have to get my top three players. I have to have spot like six different spots on the floor where I can get them. It's my job to get them shots from their six favorite spots. Like that's what I have to do. Right. And one of the things like that sometimes doesn't happen in the new pick and roll NBA is plays to get players shots in those spots. And so mm-hmm. learning things like that, you know, Mike Fratello is not only uh, the man who I do about as many games as anyone with. He's also one of my closest friends. So when we go out to dinner and I'm asking about this player or that player. I'm learning, you know, the game from him constantly, different aspects of it, what he values, what he doesn't. Um, him and Hubie would always tell me, too, late game situation. People say, like, why didn't you give this guy the ball? I guarantee you 99 out of 100 times it's because I know what that guy is like in the huddle, and he's saying, don't pass it, don't, don't, don't give it to me, don't give it to me, you know. <laughs> uh, Jim Spinarco, I've learned – so much basketball from calling games with him, whether it's, hey, when, um, you know, when a, when somebody hedges on a pick and roll, if you're the ball handler, drive yourself into their hip. They're going to call a foul when they come out there. You know, yeah. just do it. You know, Nine times out of ten, they're calling a foul on you or like, hey, what Jim would always tell me, what's what's the goal in basketball? The goal is to create a two on one. So. People think like that's a fast break. No, the goal in the half court is to create a, a two on one. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that with our with our offense? You know, like you know, you got to move it side to side. You got to swing. You know, you have to have shooters. All all this stuff. So you know, as you're around guys like this, you know, you learn more and more. Going to a couple like doing a college game with Jeff Van Gundy and going to see him and the way he observes practice and what stands out to him, like. That's help teach me things um, and then doing games with him as well. So I do think, you know, there are always new scenarios that are presented. So you, you learn some basics and whatnot uh, that grow on your basics that you already have from being around them. But then 
the more games you do with these guys, the more you learn specific scenarios and what you would do in this circumstance or the other and what to learn. Like, and from talking with coaches when you're covering them, like Brad Stevens, talking to him for Celtics-Hawks game, and we all know his ATOs are amazing, and he's known for it. And he's so humble anyway, but he's just like, no, I, I don't have a single original out of bounds point, not one. one. Mm-hmm. I take every single one. We used over 300 last year. Every single one of them, I've me or my coaching staff has taken from somebody else and just maybe done a little, like, tweak to or whatever, you know. But, right. you know, and that's a lot of people like you would already know that's sort of the way it works. But, you know, it's those kind of things where you realize, oh, he's not a mad lab, like, you know, drawing things up, you know. Yeah. And so you want to get your, your knowledge of the game in that way. You know, it's, it's funny. The, the speed of the game, like, I don't know if I could ever do play-by-play. Although, in theory, when I'm vining and I'm doing my, you know, I'm, I'm every 30 seconds another vine and whatever, and I'm, and I'm, I'm jamming on it. Uh, it's so fast that oftentimes by the end of the game, I actually, like, kind of push back from the, from the desk and be like, what just happened? Like, I don't even know what happened in that game. Do you feel yeah. that way? Sometimes, yeah. And that's one of the key elements. So – when you're first beginning to broadcast basketball games, you're just trying to keep up and, with the action and stay on the action. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to be late on your calls. Like, ideally, anytime a three-pointer goes in the air, you want to have a dramatic pause, right, while the ball's in the air. You don't want to be catching up. Yeah. Um, because you want to be able to create that moment for the audience. And that's whether that's radio or TV. Because when the ball's in the air, there is suspense and drama. And if I'm, like, kind of, like, <laughs> hurrying up, you know, to, to catch up with it, and then, like, Johnson for three, he got it instead of like, you know, <laughs> Johnson, a three, go. You know, I mean, there's yeah. just like a different rhythm to keep up with it. Um, so in the beginning, you're trying to keep up with the action. Which way, before, then, I just want to interrupt real quick because that leads me to another one of your phrases that yeah. I, I grab. I don't know if it's a phrase when you did a Scott connects, right? Yeah, like you draw I, that I, out. Is that a thing for you too? You know what? The, the connects is. The drawn out part of it is is not intentional. Uh, I, I'll have to go back and listen. Well, oh, oh, I know which one. That was when Scott. Um, yeah, Mike oh, Scott. I know the three. The right way. Yeah, Mike Scott's. I don't think it was the one where they hit like three threes in a row and Corver had two of them. It was one from the right wing, I think, okay. if I remember yeah. right. I watched that back the game. But connects is something I like just to call like uh, just within the. It's it's not. Um, I don't know that it like if I was like defining it as a catchphrase if it's there, but it's one of my go-to's, you know, okay. which I definitely like. The the kind of like shimmying on the sea. I'm not sure that's not intentional, but I don't know. Maybe it works. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so like you know those kind of things. though, as the game slows down, yeah, you can have fun with. You can think about like early on when you're calling a game, you're just trying to stay on the action. You're not able to think. Like, am I going to say connects here? Am I going to say got it? Am I going to say truth? Am I going to say you bet? These are different things I say. Like, you just kind of, like, try to call the action. Then, and then, like, for me, then it's like, all right, I want to get more descriptive with my verbs. Like, that's a really important thing to me. So it's not just Johnson drives. It's like Johnson motors or it's, you know, DeRozan slithers or, you know, Lowry bullies, you know, like whatever it is. I want to use really descriptive verbs that help, you know, shape the moment and help it come to life even more. And and then when it's slowed down for you, now you can think about those words a little bit. 
Like Lopez always has this move that looks like he's like kind of swimming through the lane, Brook Lopez. So a lot of times I'll say like Lopez swims through the lane, you know, but defined words like that you can only use occasionally. You know, I, if I can't say swims more than like two times a game because like, yo, this guy keeps saying swims, you know, mm-hmm. like I can't say slithers two consecutive possessions. It's like, what? Right. You know, you know, you need those words, whereas I could say, you know, drives a million times. No one would notice, you know, because mm-hmm. um, it's such a mundane word. It's just right. like you know, if you or I said is or the or uh, a million times in this podcast. No one would be like, he's saying the all the time, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if I kept saying paprika, they'd be like, why does this guy keep saying paprika? You know. Yeah. So if but now, you have time. Yeah, exactly. But when you <laughs> slow things down, action wise, you have time to think about like, hey, I've been saying this word. Let me let me veer to another word, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but there are times where the game action has such a pace or there's so much going on or there's a lot of TV production elements that you sort of feel like, like what, wait, what's the story of this game going on? I think the more reps you do, the more you're able to grasp that, which is so important because it's, it's the way the viewer is actually seeing it. The viewer knows what the story of the game is. You know, it's not moving that fast for the viewer. They understand what the story of the game is. You need to make sure you're accurately anticipating and reflecting that. And I think that's where a great producer comes in, too, where the producer is supposed to have that, like, slightly uh, higher view. Like, if you're ground level, you know, they're not 35,000 feet, but maybe they're, like, 5,000 feet. And they can see a little bit more of the mm-hmm. overall picture and remind you, like, hey, man, let's make sure we remind people that, you know, this is what happens when you don't have Avery Bradley and you don't have Kelly Olenek, you know? Right, right. <laughs> And so that's where a producer can come in. But ideally, the more you do, the slower it gets, the more you don't lose the story of the game. But it can happen, especially on some faster paced games with craziness going on. Yeah, I know. It's like it's just it's such an intense thing, especially in the playoffs. And then, you know, I'm going to be, you know, starting from today for the next two months every night. You know, it's going to be that way. And I'm going to be doing live postgame shows and all these things. It's like even when I do the live postgame show, having watched the game, I've been vining it. It's like if I'm not taking notes while it's going on, then I, I kind of like I really it's, it's like a like a it's just a blur. It's, it's crazy. And I, and I recognize that, yeah, the more you do it, you kind of it's you know what? It's a lot like, you know, a, an NBA player who gets more experience and then the game slows down for him. It's crazy. It's yeah, there's a lot of parallels there, it sounds like. It, it, no doubt. It's exactly that way. And the more it slows down, you know, the more you're able to – and it requires an incredible amount of focus, you know. But it's like, okay, you know, you're focused. Now it's slowed down, you're, and you're able to, like, certain things you were focusing on um, really intently become second nature, and now I can shift my focus somewhere else. You know, so it's like that's how you incorporate more stats, numbers, because now it's like I'm not just trying to keep up with the action. I want to remind people that, you know, Kyle Lowry has hit his last five threes or whatever. Yeah. All of that same way as, as a player goes, exact same way. You know, look, I want to wrap up a little bit here with um, – I'm kind of curious how you don't step on the color commentator. Uh, do you guys do a thing where you touch each other or you put a hand signal because we can't see that, obviously? How do you do that where you, or you have to cut them off? How does that work where it seems so seamless? You know, it's different with different people, right? Um, I it, it depends. The more you work with someone, the more you kind of know when they want to speak and when they don't, okay. when they're going to jump in and when they aren't. Um, I've done so many games with Jim Spinarkle and Mike Fratello. Like, I know 
like Mike, I know Mike is always going to give me this space to like round out a call. Like, I just know he's never going to jump in like to have me, you know, to cut me off from rounding out a call. So if I'm saying like, you know, Williams through the lane, lays it in, he has 20 in the quarter and Darren lead oh what a performance from darren williams i know he's not gonna like jump in at any point there because i just know his style is to kind of lay back and then go right mm-hmm. um whereas if i'm working with john barry i know like i i want to get in a little bit quicker and by the way this isn't like a preference of one guy or another it's just like how you learn different analysts because i i love working with jb and we have kind of more of a like we have more of a like quick bite style yeah. Where like I'll, I'll I'll kind of get in and get out on a call. He might jump in, and then I'm jumping in again quicker than in the front court. You know, right. well, and it's, uh, who's the good cop? Who's the bad cop? When you if, decide, you, you, you and JB are the buddy movie. One of you has to be a good cop. The other guy's the bad cop, right? <laughs> I'll be the good cop. JB JB's got way more like swag and attitude than I. Have. <laughs> okay. he, he's the bad cop. But like Jim with Jim Spinarco, like or or another thing with Fratello. I know Fratello will like look slightly to his left, but like not with eyes on me. He'll just like tilt his head and keep his eyes on the floor. He does that. I know it means he wants to say something, even though it may not be the normal rhythmic time for when he speaks. With Spinarkel, I always know if he wants to like get in, like in the half court late in the shot clock, something's going on because he'll like I'll just see him kind of like lean forward with his hand, you know. And you know you just learn those things from working with him. But I gotta say, man. The analysts I work with are so friggin' good that they almost always just know how to fit in around you. Like it's not hard as a play-by-play guy because they just whether it's PJ Carlesimo or it's you know uh, Jeff Van Gundy or it's JB or it's Hubie Brown or it's Mike Fratello or Jim Spinarco, all of them are so excellent at what they do that you just kind of do what you do. And they know how to like fit in seamlessly, which makes it a lot easier. Because if you don't have someone who you have like natural rhythm with, then it can become a little tougher to find, you know, to find your place. Like Hubie is one of the best people to work for as a play-by-play guy because you know exactly what he's going to do. Like you know what's coming after every play. You know exactly how he wants to get in. You know, you, you know he wants to break down this aspect of the play. You know how to replay what he wants to do. like, and, and knowing what the analyst is going to do makes it that much easier for a play-by-play guy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I, I got the chance to talk to Hubie at the uh, 2014 finals, and I felt like I was in a – I felt like I was, we were doing play-by-play because it, it was that seamless and smooth. And obviously he was talking much more because I, I wanted to hear him talk more, but it was so easy to talk to him, and I could I, – I already recognize what you're, what, what you're talking about there. And even with, like, yeah. Fratello, I'm so glad that you were able to mention those guys because obviously I wouldn't do what I'm doing without Mike Fratello being the star of the Telestrator for all those years, uh, you know, and then – Hubie Brown, you know, I mean, second to Al McGuire, Hubie Brown in our, our household was like the, the, you know, the god of, of that. Uh, and yeah. interesting enough, John Madden also, and I, I don't like football at all. I used to like football a lot, but John Madden's the other guy like that who just sort of was able to give you that, um, you know, that those are the, the guys that I would, you know, look up to. But nonetheless, I, you know, you've, you've broken down some amazing stuff here with us. I, I, I can't tell you how much I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we got to talk. I want to talk more Nets at some point. You got to talk about the new coach. I don't know who that guy is. 
Uh, yeah, he, you know, for sure. I, I, and I, I have to say, all impressions from about Kenny Atkinson are big pluses so far from everyone I've talked to around NBA circles. Uh, I got to chat with him a little bit at the Hawks Celtics game that I did, um, and uh, he couldn't have been more impressive or more personable. Um, and, and I think that you know, obviously, we we can. I'll talk next with you whenever you want, my friend. But I think the overall. Um, you know, takeaway that I've gotten that's a really good thing is like with Sean Marks' front office, it, you're going to have less leaks. It's going to be more about basketball. You know, Kenny Atkinson wasn't one of those names being talked about, yet he was the guy who was hired. And he, he wasn't like straight off the Spurs bench, even though he has a connection because of Bud. But I think that you're going to see just like it's going to be about basketball now. And the hiring of Kenny Atkinson is another example of that. Plus, I think that. You know, being a New Yorker, too, I think, like, New York fans, Brooklyn fans are going to really relate to him and like him and be energized by him. And he's he's a developmental guy. You know, he's going to the, – the Nets have to access the, you know, undervalued asset and, uh, and and get the most out of them. And I think that Kenny Atkinson will help a lot with that. Well, awesome. Well, you definitely helped me out with uh, everything that I have that's, that's uh, that I need to work on. So thank you for uh, for coming on the show and helping us with that. Uh, you know, uh, again, another thing we'll talk about next time, perhaps, is as the pride of Hackley School uh, and in a <laughs> long line of insane. Just just to throw us out there, I, is, it's true that Berman and Olbermann both went there. Yeah, it, it, not only yes, it's true, okay. and uh, not only do they both go there, but that was like part of my motivation for wanting to go there was I knew even as a wow. you know eighth grader I wanted to broadcast. And I was like, well, there must be something in the water here. If these two guys who I admire went to Hackley. And then it was pretty cool, you know, obviously all working for the same company at one point at ESPN. Like when I would throw, Olbermann would like throw to me during broadcast, you know, because he'd do a little promo for his show and he'd always make a Hackley reference. So it's, it's cool. I think it's something we all take a certain level of pride in. Terrific. Well, again, thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the show and breaking that stuff down for us. Can't wait to have you on again. Uh, I can't wait to hear you on the next call. So we'll be looking for that when you're on and doing covering the playoffs. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Ryan? I'm in, man. I love it. I'm a huge B-Ball Breakdown fan, and I appreciate you having me on, man. Cool. Thank you so much. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy. Without all the extra drama. I even had a gift It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better.